Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Jealousy is fearing the loss of an attachment figure, somebody that's important to us, due to the intercedence or the loss of attention uh, to a rival. So basically, we are dependent uh, in a core relationship uh, that we want to sustain, but due to the presence of arrival for our attachment figure's attention, there's an ongoing fear that we will be abandoned. And that is the quality that animates jealousy. Essentially, the fear, the vulnerability associated with losing attention of a caregiver or an attachment figure to another. And then envy is the desire for the success, advantage, advantages, popularity, wealth uh, of someone else. Uh, it's essentially uh, also motivated by significant underlying emotional factors, but it's essentially where we look at someone else's success or achievement or accomplishments or recognition or uh, advantages in life and there's a feeling of resentment and a wanting what they have. Envy is very well masked by judgment. Very often we believe that when, if we look at uh, something on Facebook or something in the press and we see that somebody's getting some form of success or recognition and we don't think they deserve it and it creates a, it sparks a story of um, injustice uh, unfairness if that's something that happens once in a while it's probably not a significant pattern that needs to be investigated but if it's a if there's a pattern to it, a regularity to it, then it's, we can confidently say it's masked envy. Again, it's uh, this sense of feeling desirous of someone else's advantages. So both envy and jealousy stem from insecure attachment. What is insecure attachment? Insecure attachment is when in early formative years, we do not feel reliably connected to one of the caregivers or important figures in our, in our family systems, in our early life. Insecure attachment is when there's a lack of reliability in feeling that someone will be there who will appreciate us, soothe us, make us feel safe, 
and make us feel seen and understood, who will create feelings of we're a priority to them. And it's a sense of confidence that a caregiver, a parent, will be, has our back in the world. When children have a sense of security in their relationship, they have a, they feel confident. They know that they can explore the world, they can, other people can achieve things, can get things, can even, they can even sustain losses of attention and still have a robust sense of I'll be okay because I know I have this foundation that my mother, my father, my family will be there for me, will help me uh, stay buoyant and uh, have a sense of resilience and a sense of I'll be okay. But when we don't have that, where a parent is either unreliable or emotionally unavailable to their, their own depression or anxiety or um, borderline tendencies or alcoholism and addiction, where there's not a sense of, I can trust that a caregiver will be there to help me process the events of life, then we wind up insecure. And furthermore, there's a lot of other uh, repercussions. The child who doesn't feel the presence of a caregiver will feel vulnerable, will not really trust that other people has her his back. They will develop what's called internal working models, which are essentially the way we expect to be treated by other people and what type of people we will seek attention from. We develop really um, insecure vulnerable internal working models. Probably the most important quality of insecure attachment, or amongst the most, is what's called core shame. When a child isn't regularly, reliably given enough care, is made to feel important, is made to feel uh, a priority, then the child invariably explains that experience is there's something wrong with me. There's something unlovable about me. There's something about me, I don't know what it is, that is leading to these experiences of rejection or not being cared for, not being prioritized. And then the child will, uh, the child doesn't know what that is. So it associates, it's called core shame because this child believes there's something in its core, something in its very identity, its very self, that is toxic or unlovable. Why else would my father not be there when I so needed him? Why else would my mother be so caught up in her own anxieties or frustrations and not be able to in any way see how much suffering and make me feel cared for? So the secure child in the playground is the one that goes off and explores, connects with other children, because that child, she feels that her father or her mother uh, is keeping an eye on her, so, and they'll intercede on her behalf so she can take risks in the world. But if she doesn't feel that, she will 
not uh, explore in the same way. So there's two types of, predominantly two types of, of insecure attachment. One is anxious, the other is avoidant. There's a third called disorganized, but I'm not going to talk about that tonight. Um, but I just want to let you know that it's there, and roughly 3% of the population has it. It's due to abuse and trauma. But the most uh, significant of the insecure attachment styles in terms of population are anxious and avoidant. The anxious child is the one that sometimes got love and attention and interest and care, and but then other times when she most wanted it, it was not available. Uh, and that creates a jarring attachment wound or a mini trauma. And when it happens frequently enough, the child can no longer with any uh, sense of surety know when the caregiver will be available. That child, because she doesn't know if the parent has her back, she will not venture off and engage with others. She'll become dependent, codependent on the parent and will essentially follow the parent around in the playground and not go off and explore. She will not essentially engage with the world. She will stay, she'll stay in proximity because she doesn't trust that the mother or father is there for her. The avoidant child gives up entirely on care. Uh, the parent is so unavailable, so uh, incapable of making the child feel safe and prioritized that parents' emotions or rage or anxiety is so on the surface constantly that the child eventually decides to become self-reliant. She shows up just to be fed, just to get her basic needs met, but she will not uh, put her trust in others. She will not prioritize intimacy. And in a playground, she will not hover around the mother. She won't care if the mother goes away. The anxious child will shriek and become completely uh, inconsolable if the parent leaves for a moment and leaves her with other parents. The secure child will allow some, you know, the parent to say, I'm going to be away for a moment and my friend will be watching over you. That secure child won't have an emotional uh, reaction. She'll be placated. She'll have trust that the mother knows who will be safe for her. The avoidant child will not interact with other children. Particularly, the ch that child will play with toys and look to accumulate objects and things to make her feel uh, secure and in the world. She doesn't want to rely on people. So knowing that, it becomes easy to understand why there's so much research into the attachment styles that create anger, I'm sorry, envy and jealousy. Um, jealousy is a fixation on an attachment figure. There's two kinds, predominant kinds of jealousy. I mean, uh, attachment psychologists have actually broken it down to five types. But uh, I don't, I can't even wrap my head around how they got that sort of nuanced. Um, for me, the two that are the most recognizable 
are the separation, the, the jealousy that's based on fear of being abandoned, and the jealousy that's based on paranoia. So the jealousy that's based on fear of separation or being abandoned is the person who's unable to accept the prospect of loss. They believe that any rejection or loss of an attachment figure will be overwhelming, that they'll never find another partner ever again, that everything, all their eggs are in this basket. Um, predominantly, this is found in people with anxious attachment. And in terms of the studies by Marazati, Consoli, Albanese, and a whole bunch of other clinical psychologists, in terms of gender, this type of uh, jealousy skews more towards women, roughly between 65 and 70%, 30% male. Then the other type of jealousy is paranoia-based jealousy. And this is uh, someone who is suspicious of their partner, who wants to control their partner, uh, believes their partner has low morality, and is essentially deflecting a lot of anger towards their own parent who they felt abandoned them onto their partner. And if you haven't guessed it, it's, this skews predominantly male and predominantly avoidant in its attachment style. So hopefully if we've experienced jealousy as a pattern, the first important thing to note is what type of jealousy do I experience when I experience it? Is it the type where I want to control my partner, where I feel rage at them, where I believe there's somebody who is deeply flawed? Or is it the kind of jealousy where I am just, I fear what it would be like to be abandoned. Um, I would be inconsolable. I don't believe there'll be anybody else for me. I have to make this work at all costs. Knowing this, we can begin to address the underlying causes, which is the anxious or avoidant attachment. In the paranoia-based jealousy, the sense of um, controlling and the sense that my partner has low morality is a way, again, for someone to deflect all their rage and anger that they felt originally towards their parent very often it's a man who felt that his mother uh, was unavailable to give him attention uh, due to her, her, uh, her fealty to his father. And so that boy grows up enraged. He doesn't allow himself to feel the anger of his father, so he feels it towards his mother. He never expresses it, so he deflects it as an adult onto his female partners. It's a very big factor in toxic masculinity. It's a very big factor in a lot of uh, the sort of violence that men express towards women in our culture. Um, when it comes to separation, uh, anxiety-based jealousy, this is more the fear of one's own core inadequacy, one's sense of core shame that we fear that if the person leaves us, no one will ever want us because they will see that, that thing that's wrong with me, that unlovable thing that we felt since childhood. So envy is a largely 
in many cases, largely an avoidant tendency. Uh, it's the grown-up child who tried to get all her his needs met by accumulating toys and by self-reliance and didn't want to have uh, attachments or relationships, didn't want to depend on other people, essentially learns to shut down their emotions. So this child grows up to be someone who believes that all of life can be solved by getting all the goodies, getting fame, getting attention, getting money, getting success. Um, these are person who, this is someone who doesn't mourn their abandonments and their feelings of disappointment with others. They take it out, they deflect their anger at other people who they believe are unfairly succeeding in the world. Sometimes envy can be felt by people who are anxious, but that's generally in the case with a rival for the attention of someone else. So they might be envious towards someone they believe that their partner might be interested in, but generally they don't score very high on envy per se. In the case of envy, it deflects anger away from one's sense of a flawed core self onto others. And in both cases, envy and jealousy lead to a withdrawing from forming a large subset of attachments to help us process our experiences in life. One of the great problems about our contemporary culture is that we've um, essentially chopped away a very vital need that all human beings have instilled by evolution. We spent the entire course of our species evolution in small tribes of about 6 to 12 other adults where we would over time get to know each other extremely well and other people would know exactly what emotional state we were in at any given moment. We could essentially, for much of human species history, for the first 160,000 years, we didn't have language. We were relying purely on emotions to interact with other people. And our emotions were developed to finally hue and tone and guide us into these interpersonal relationships. And a big part of those relationships was feeling, having five or six people available to know us. In our contemporary culture, many of us don't have five or six people that intimately know exactly what we're going through in any given moment. We rely on one person, and that is disastrous. It creates codependent relationships. It creates unrealistic demands on partners. It keeps us from exploring the world, especially when we're anxious. If we have anxious attachment, we will hope that that one figure will solve our lives rather than develop a small community of support where we can go out and embrace the world. The Buddha... Um, had some very interesting thoughts at times on envy and jealousy. Um, 
he believed that they were extremely universal qualities, uh, and he saw them as based on the delusion that, uh, especially envy, he saw as a delusion based on materialist, you know, uh, cultures. He, in his wonderful teaching, the Atadanda, which is my one of my five favorite suttas of the Buddha, the Buddha says, I looked around and all I saw were people floundering like fish in shrinking puddles, competing with one another, and I saw that the world was entirely empty, incapable of giving anyone a safe haven. Living in competition, people spend their lives racing around frantically, never finding any peace. But for those who stop thinking, this is mine, and know that nothing really belongs to anyone, there is no grief, even in the thought, I have nothing at all. So what the Buddha is alluding to here is um, he viewed the world radically in terms of impermanence and saw that everything that we collect or hold on to or cling to for a sense of security uh, and we're talking about objects here, not relationships, but anything, any, anything that we consume or any success that we claim, uh, that sense of security lasts for a very brief time. It's a dopamine burst that within a short space, a short duration, dissipates and leaves us once again um, craving more and more money, wealth, goods, success. We want to have more and more of our posts liked by people or whatever. We, we constantly are seeking more affirmation from others, and it doesn't create any sense of security. And when you think about it, how could it if the underlying cause of anxiousness and jealousy is an underlying feeling of insecurity and core shame, then how would attaining anything external address that underlying feeling there's something missing, there's something wrong with me, there's something unlovable? It couldn't possibly fix that. The Buddha recommended uh, two practices. One was mudita, which is essentially when, one, when we're feeling envy or jealousy, think the opposite. It's a bit of a rudimentary strategy, but for many people it works quite well. It's essentially if there's a rival for the attention of your partner or if there's somebody that you feel is unfairly getting a lot of recognition and success, it's the practice of wishing them well-being and a and, a try and uh, wishing them happiness, rather than falling into the strategy of the resentments that are, we kick into as a way to protect ourselves from the vulnerability. Mindful awareness of the core feelings in the body that occur when we're feeling envy and jealousy is another key practice in the, in the Pali Canon. The Buddha talks about finding where we feel in the body, the somatic experience that's beneath jealousy and envy. And that's very important. There's so many therapeutic modalities these days that talk about 
um, envy and jealousy are inhibitory emotions that essentially disempower us of the resilient qualities of our core emotions. So if we can get to what's beneath it and feel into the anger or the sadness or grief that is really at the heart of the feelings of vulnerability and loss of early on attachments, then we can start to heal. Another practice that I'm really using a lot of in counseling these days with people that I really, really like is based on the work of two Harvard psychologists, uh, Daniel Brown, Sam Elliott. And Daniel Brown is a Buddhist uh, as scholar as well as a famous uh, psychotherapist. And he runs a clinic on attachment. And he's found that core shame and the vulnerability that creates envy and jealousy and so many of our other symptoms is created by an, an inability to, when we think about ourselves, feel good feelings somatically in our body. Literally children at a very early developmental age who are secure, who have a lot of love and attention that's reliable, that child, when it sees its reflection in the mirror, feels good. For me, at times, that's hard to imagine. Uh, I had a father who was a very scary figure, and he was never shy in telling me that there was something wrong with me. And so when I would look, I when to, even still to this day, when, some, when I see a photograph of myself, or I hear my voice on these podcasts, I have to edit them slightly to put them up, it's the first response is still that sense of, you know, almost disgust. And I, I've had to work so much in both my own Buddhist therapy and in my practice to counteract that with um, essentially associating my self-representation, the image of myself, with positive feelings. Daniel Brown argues that if, when we look at ourselves, when we think of ourselves, when we read our name, when we see an image of ourselves in a mirror, if we don't feel anything at all, that creates the feeling that there's something missing in my life. There's something that's not that I'm 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 not complete, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not lovable. And very often, children who grow up in insecure family systems where they don't get a lot of constant, reliable caring, don't feel anything when they see their image in the mirror. They just feel absolutely no change in their affect. Worse is if the child, when it looks in the mirror, feels a sense of disgust, a sense of revulsion, or, or, or a sense of shame, that child then is very likely to either have uh, an anxiety disorder, which I thankfully have worked through, or depression, which is what happens when the child is avoidant and shuts down all this emotional awareness. So we want to be able to associate our self-representation, our image of ourself, the way we visualize ourselves, the way we think about ourselves with positive feelings. If we do from positive somatic states, 
all of our actions, our behaviors flow from that. If you feel a sense of um, a sense of physiological comfort at your when you see yourself and you think about yourself, you want to protect yourself. You don't want to allow yourself to suffer. You don't want other people to take advantage of you. You want to state your needs and set boundaries in relationships. So tonight, in our meditation, we're going to address envy and jealousy by going right at the roots. We'll be doing the Buddhist practice of mudita, where we send um, metta, loving-kindness, to somebody we perceive to be a rival. We'll explore the feelings underneath. Uh, envy and jealousy and try to find the core emotion that's been displaced. And three, we'll try to finally associate our self-representation with positive feelings in the body. So I know that was a lot to digest, but I'll try to make it all very easy to follow in meditation. I thank you for listening. I hope that it was in some ways interesting. If not, come back next week and I'll try to do better and uh, so yeah find a really comfortable seated position so let's just keep a really relaxed body and the only little bit of effort to put in is just as I say every week just Prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest, from drooping. And the way I like to do that is just tilt your head slightly back by lifting your chin a little bit. That's the sole effort right now. And just let every other part in your body relax, especially the shoulders. See if you can let the shoulders drop heavily like you've just put down two heavy bags. If it feels appropriate to you, gently pull back your shoulders enough to open up your chest. Not in any way that's uncomfortable, but just enough that you feel that there's a lot of nice space and openness. When you do that, you're actually directly addressing the vagal vagus nerve, which uh, is so fundamental in the emotional settings and moods and attentional states of the midbrain. So let's take a nice full in-breath through the nose, and while you breathe in, imagine your belly is pulling in the breath, so just let your belly expand like it's pulling in the breath, and then when you need to breathe out, just allow your belly to gently subside, and imagine that all the tension in your belly is being released during the exhalation, so... In the inhalation, you're pulling the air, not in by your nose, but you're actually pulling in the air by your belly. 
your belly inflates and then as you breathe out, just relaxing the belly. Each out-breath is really softening and releasing any tension. And one more, breathing in. And then as you breathe out, releasing the belly, any tension. And let's do that again in the chest. So breathing into the chest, the chest expands, pulling the breath. And then as you breathe out, release any tension in the chest. And you feel as you breathe out, whether through the nose or the mouth, that any tension in that area is really being expelled out of the body by the out-breath, the exhalation. Breathing in again. Nice. Breathing out, releasing any tension in the chest. One more time. And then breathing out, releasing any tension in the chest. And then on your own, find an area of your body you'd like to breathe into. And as you breathe out, release any tension. Sometimes for me, it's the eyes or the back of the neck or the, the lower back. Anywhere you want to breathe into, imagine that the in-breath is being pulled into that area, lighting it up in awareness, and then as you breathe out, releasing any tension, I breathe into the micro-muscles around my eyes right now. And then as I breathe out, I soften. So after the third breath, just allow your body to breathe in whatever way it feels comfortable. And let's bring our attention to the intention that we're going to set in our meditation. And what it would be like is that in that state of mind we go into the first day of a vacation where you reach that place where you really want to just fully arrive. You're there at your destination and any thought about unresolved affairs back home, any thought about planning what you're going to do when you return from your vacation are utterly unappealing. All you really want to think about is and pay attention to is what you're experiencing right now. You've arrived at a really special moment in your life where you don't have to do anything, you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to plan anything. The only thing you have to prioritize is your own ease and reconnecting with the very sensations of being alive. And that's all that's important to you. The way we stay present and really land in our lives is by 
filling up the mind with the present time sensations. We can do only one sensation, for example, the breath. Or we could do multiple sensations, which is holding the sensation of the breath in the body, hearing the sounds of the air conditioner and the the sounds of the street, the cars from below, the feeling of any contact we're making with the ground, light flickering behind closed eyelids. So you can pick one sensation and just hold it in the foreground of your awareness. For instance, the sounds. Listen to the most distant sound to the left, the most distant sound to the right, and then connect the two, creating a landscape of sounds, not judging or annotating or visualizing what's creating the sounds, listening to the sounds like you would listen to an unfamiliar piece of music. Or you could hold the breath and awareness and count the inhalations and exhalations. For instance, counting one on the inhalation, two on the out, three on the next inhalation, four on the next exhalation. When you get to five on the inhalation, you start counting down four on the out-breath, three on the in-breath. If holding a single sensation is unappealing, try to immerse yourself in the entirety of what's actually occurring right now, like you would an immersive experience that was completely new. You just found yourself at Machu Picchu or some amazing place, some amazing time in your life, and just drink in all of the sensations. And lastly, before we go into silence for a while, there will come a time sooner or later, and perhaps many times in your meditation, where a thought will bypass your intention to stay present and will find a way to lure you away from the actual sensations around you and will guide you into a virtual reality. And that's all okay. We've trained the mind over much of our life that when we're relaxed, and give ourselves permission not to think about the past or the future, that we just allow the mind to wander rather than to reconnect with the sensations of being alive. So when that happens, just feel good that you've become aware we've wound up in a daydream of thought and just relax back into the present sensations and give yourself a nice rewarding breath, feel good. No matter what happens in a meditation, it's 
always positive studies show that's always neurally a benefit. So don't allow any frustration or self-judgment to play a role.
following up with what we covered in the talk, let's bring to mind the image of someone that we perceive in some way to be a rival or someone that we resent in some small way due to their success, achievement, attainment, wealth, someone who seems to have had an unfair leg up. Just see first if you can hold in your mind an image of this person, if not someone that you perceive yourself to be envious of, someone that you judge that is a figure of resentment in some way. And see if you can find the somatic experience in your body that the story this person of this person is obscuring. There's a feeling, a somatic emotion. in the body that's very obscured generally by all the thoughts of resentment or envy or judgment. See if you can find look for a feeling in the stomach, in the chest, in the throat, the face, the front of the body the core organs which are controlled by the vagus nerve, some slight contraction perhaps in the abdomen or in the, or maybe a sensation of heat in the chest. And just see if you can stay with that feeling. Don't try to get rid of it, just observe it. When we feel the emotion beneath envy, jealousy, judgment, resentment, and stay with the somatic, then just observing the feeling regulates the emotion beneath, and then naturally the resentment or jealousy or envy begins to subside. The staying with the feeling in the body. It's the emotion in the body that really needs our attention, not the story that we tell ourselves in language which has no ability to process emotions.
So the second part, while holding this individual and having felt the animating emotion beneath, is now to change the kind of thought we have instead of the story of resentment or unfairness, knowing that this being has suffering too, has suffered as we have, has known abandonment as we have, knowing that our sending any form of compassion and appreciation in no way lets them off the hook for any misdeeds. It's just changing the way. In changing the story, the story no longer becomes addictive. Resentments are addictive. Compassion, forgiveness, although very beneficial, are not addictive. They won't lead to obsessive thinking. So the degree we can just, while holding their image, may you feel peace, And may you enjoy the successes that you've deserved and worked towards. someone else's happiness or peace of mind does not come at our expense, then we're not wishing them to become more wealthy or successful. We're just wishing them peace of mind. So finally, moving on to the heavy lifting part of this practice, now addressing any core shame that we may have. I'd like to you to visualize, invite you to visualize something, some action that you've taken recently that was beneficial for someone else, that was done out of altruism, kindness, care, sometime where you took the time to listen show up for, take care of someone, even though it wasn't making your life any easier. Something that, an action that you can feel proud of. And just hold that image in your mind, or the image of the person 
that you extended yourself towards and took care of. And see if you can visualize them acknowledging in their face, facial expression, acknowledging your effort. They're looking at you and they appreciate what you've done. And see if you can find again in your body any sense of comfort, pride, resilience, strength, anything that you feel after you've done something that you feel good about. If no action recently comes to mind, just think of something that you've done that makes you feel really good, some action you've taken. Find the sensation in the body. And then let go of whatever image is in your mind and bring up your image, an image of how you look right now. If not now, sometime recently, hold that image and link it to the feeling of comfort and ease and pride that you're feeling, linking yourself with positive feelings in the body. Each time your mind, mind wanders, brings it, bring it back to your image, really deepening the feeling of ease and comfort in your body and associating your image with a sense of joy. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. When you hear the sound of the bell, I'd like just to ask that instead of opening your eyes quickly, that you very, very slowly open your eyes and don't look around the room at first. Just integrate sight with the feelings that you become aware of in your body and try to bring those feelings with you into your ongoing awareness so that you don't allow sight to push awareness of your body out of the picture. That's what sustained mindfulness is, is simply sharing 
your awareness of the world around you with an awareness of how you feel internally reconnecting with vital core emotional states. <laughs> 